This episode may contain content that could alarm or trigger some people. Listener discretion is advised. Typically, people with binge eating disorder and bulimia, you know, their family and friends may not know for eight to ten years that they actually have a disorder like this because it's so shame-based and it's so highly secretive. Hello and welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Guy Rollison. My guest today has worked in the field of eating disorders for approximately 20 years, supporting hundreds of people to achieve recovery. She's a member of the Australian Psychological Society, the Australian Association of Psychologists and the Australian New Zealand Academy of Eating Disorders. She's a writer, advocate and voice of reason in the health segment and together with a team of clinical psychologists, dietitians, psychotherapists, delivers industry-leading counselling and treatment for eating, dieting and body image issues. Psychologist, director and co-founder of Body Matters, Sarah McMahon, welcome. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm going well, thank you. Yourself? I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, look, from the outset, I have to say I was blown away by the sheer breadth of experience uh, of the team that's been assembled at Body Matters. As, as co-founder uh, and director, tell me a bit more, not only about yourself, but how Body Matters came to fruition. Yeah, um, so I actually had a lived experience of an eating disorder as a teenager and, you know, made a decision at that point in time, I think I was about 19, that I really wanted to make a difference in this space if I ever became recovered and um, and I worked very hard on that. Um, I was at that point in time I was studying architecture, but it obviously compromised my experience at school and um, and university and uh, pulled out, got better and, you know, and, and the rest is history, history really. I focused on... Um, subsequently just trying to make a difference in the eating disorder space and here I am today still doing that. So uh, to ask the very basic question what is body image? So body image is it's not how we look but it's how we think about how we look and so there's often a massive discrepancy actually um, in, in, in relation to how people perceive themselves and how they're actually perceived by others. So can body image or at least our perception of of what body image is or should be, can that affect our mental health or our emotional thinking? Definitely. I, I think particularly today more than ever uh, because we live in a society that really values beauty, really values appearance and thinness, but social media has really taken that to another level where it's not so much about how you feel or think about things, it's how things look. So we live in a society where it is about appearances and people will do things just because they look good, you know, not because they feel good. So I think that social media has really facilitated a complete disconnect from our bodies. And so when we're working with our clients, like a huge part of the work that we're doing is reconnecting with our bodies, you know, reconnecting with how things feel for us in terms of, um, you know, what feels good and what doesn't feel good. Because I think particularly for young people today, they've, you know, they've never experienced that. They've lived in a world entirely that is about how things appear. Um, and I think, you know, at least for me and my peers and people older than me, we were we, we escaped that because social media really wasn't around um, when we were growing up. I mean, for many years now, we've seen the rise of a niche television program, uh, reality shows where, where cosmetic surgery is almost put on a pedestal. And it wasn't that long ago that even Botox was viewed as extreme. And today, of course, just about anyone can walk into their shopping centre for treatment virtually. So my question is, what's led us to this point? What are some of the things that lead to negative body image? And what are some of the ways that we, we can cope with that negative body image? Yeah, so I'd, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm kind of um, focusing too much on industries, but the reality is that 
there are huge industries that profit here from making us feel bad about how we look and and posing solutions to that and certainly the the dieting industry is a big one the fitness industry the beauty industry and I think that blurring of boundaries now we have kind of um medi clinics and um there's it's cosmetic surgery botox you know even the way that we deal with our hair and our teeth you know teeth whining hair straightening it was only available to several celebrities in the past whereas now it's available to the masses and in fact it's you know it's actually kind of expected that you will look like a celebrity things that you in in the past you'd have to go to a hairdresser um, to facilitate that so um, I think times have really changed and that's kind of just um, accelerated body image concerns because that um, ideal um, and the the kind of the ought of how we should look uh, there's that expectation of adhering to that, which which in the past it just sort of really wasn't available. And add to that is things like social media and the administration of apps that such as um, that that modify our appearance, so filters and and things which can change how we look. Again, that was only available to celebrities in magazines, um, but that's so readily available. And I think that process sort of facilitates cognitive dissonance. Um, in the sense, sorry, the opposite of cognitive dissonance, where when cognitive dissonance is basically that our actions and our behaviours need to align, and if they don't, there's an uncomfortable feeling, and one needs to adjust. So um, the the process of um, for people to identify the so called flaws or perceived flaws in their body and and uh, alter them, it actually feeds. You know, you think on surface level it might make us feel better about how we look, but it actually breeds body discontent because there's a preoccupation with these perceived flaws and, and a manipulation of those to uh, to something that's actually physically impossible in many cases. So let me just turn, say, to eating disorders and, and how common they are. Um, is it still the case that these disorders are more common in women than men? And, and are there other groups that may be predisposed or more affected by that? Yeah, it's a great question because I think um, diagnoses diagnostic criteria is always changing and evolving um, and so in the past things like bulimia and binge eating disorder weren't even diagnoses it was just anorexia so there's this kind of catch up then with research um, and statistics in terms of what we're seeing as a, a cluster of symptoms that makes a diagnosable disorder and and then how that's kind of represented in society but certainly in terms of groups uh, binge eating disorder tends to be equally affected by males and, and females. There's research to suggest that anorexia in under 14-year-old boys, um, you know, that one in four cases is a male. Um, so that's, I think, very sort of unexpected and perhaps underrepresented in the media and um, in, in terms of our general knowledge about eating disorders. And one of the newer diagnoses is called ARFID, Avoidant and Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, um, where people are restricting food not based on body image but based on uh, things like sensory um, kind of heightened sensory experiences or distress around eating um, that's not to do with body image, that there's there's far more people uh, who, who are seeing diagnosed with that and there's an overlap there between uh, often with autism um, people who or autistic people are, are more likely to have that. So I think we're also sort of seeing this increased awareness in terms of neurodivergence and, and, and people who, who are neurodivergent and um, and people with eating disorders and it's very much an emerging space in terms of research but also treatment that the sort of the treatment hasn't really caught up yet in terms of like you know what's actually presenting which I think mm-hmm. is quite astronomical in the last year or two um, there's so much uh, need for services that have a really dedicated support 
around neuro, neurodivergence and eating issues, but um, you know the treatment protocols actually aren't there yet. So what what's what's the difference between just overeating on occasion um, compared with say food addiction or, or binge eating disorders? Yeah, that's another great question. So I think binge eating, if we sort of think about that as an extreme case um, of disordered eating, that typically it's characterized by eating a huge amount of food in a discrete period of time. And then there's other factors. So there's a sense of loss of control often, um, huge amount of shame. It's often done in secret. So typically people with uh, binge eating disorder and bulimia, you know, their family and friends may not know for eight to 10 years that they actually have a disorder like this because it's so shame-based and it's so highly secretive. And so I think you think about that, that's actually, you know, it is very much disordered and it meets clinical diagnostic criteria because it impacts on somebody's life. But kind of moving from, say, what you might consider to be regular eating or normal eating, although I think, you know, that's another issue in itself. How do we actually define that and what is that? But I think there's a very much a continuum leading from that to disordered eating. Um, like bulimia so and binge eating disorder. So you've got compulsive overeating where people are kind of eating past fullness or eating in a way that's out of control. You've got overeating, um, but they don't kind of impact on somebody's quality of life to the same extent. And it's not used as a coping mechanism to the extent that binge eating, disorder, binge eating actually is. So I think most of us can probably identify with periods where we might have eaten compulsively or eaten past fullness, and that's not necessarily a disorder. But the the other kind of key factor with binge eating disorder is the frequency. So it's sort of happening at least once a week, um, typically to meet diagnostic criteria. So as a professional, um, I know as, as a family member or a friend, you may notice some things, but as a professional, what are the red flags that you would see on a day-to-day basis that may be more prevalent than others? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the most obvious one is, you know, fluctuations around weight. And I think it's important to remember that fluctuations around weight could be to any number of medical or psychiatric issues or concerns. Um, So you don't need to have an eating disorder to lose weight or gain weight rapidly. Um, And very much eating disorders are disorders, the behavioural disorders rather than weight disorders, if that makes sense. So we're looking for a cluster of symptoms, things which are occurring around the same period of time. So changes in personality, um, changes in relationships often, changes in relationship with food. So someone might become overly interested or completely disinterested and, you know, obviously avoidant. So it's those sorts of changes that we're noticing. Um, and often the weight change occurs it's sort of delayed. So these are the uh, the warning signs that we're noticing initially. Um, by the time weight change occurs, quite often the behaviour is fairly embedded. I know you mentioned the media. Um, I'm sure there's peer group pressures, all those sort of things. Um, genetics, family-inspired triggers uh, and personality types. Are, are, there, are there individuals that may be more prone to this sort of thing than others as well? Definitely, certainly anorexia. There's um, there's research to suggest that there's uh, their brain brain based disorders, eating disorders, and that there can be a genetic component to it. And I think it's really hard sometimes to aside from when we're actually looking at things like genes, it's hard to separate environmental sort of nature and nurture. Um, so it's very common that we would see clients present with eating disorders who have family members who also have eating disorders, and so. So people have grown up around diet culture, for example. That's not to blame family members because, you know, I think we're all trying to survive the, the world as best we can. And it's certainly not to say that um, 
the family members have caused it. But it's also, you know, we see so many families who are just the most lovely, beautiful, protective families as well. So I, I, I think kind of remembering that the key factor for families, if someone develops an eating disorder, is to see them as a resource rather than spend too, too much time thinking about how did the eating disorder develop and is the family responsible either kind of environmentally or because of genetic coding. But even like genetics is interesting because even sort of epigenetics and how those codes, um, genetic codes are um, de- develop, you know, that, that if a mother diets, for example, when she's pregnant, you know, the body doesn't know that it's 2023 and it's cool to be thin at the moment. The body, um, the body kind of thinks that they're in a famine and their child is more likely to sit at a higher body weight simply because that's to do with um, survival for that young person. And so, um, you know, our bodies are sort of fairly prehistoric, I think, in, in many ways in terms of how they're actually wired. are still very much geared around survival. And so there's this kind of real collision now when we see kind of what's happening to people when they diet and then how that kind of impacts on the body and, and biology. This episode of Brainstorm is proudly supported by HIF. What if your health insurer gave you the freedom to choose? Yeah, we're talking about 2023 and, and modern day thinking. So do you think health campaigns, for example, um, for which for the most part seem to tackle obesity, um, potentially sends the wrong messages, particularly to those who, who may be susceptible, um, and those advertisers and marketers, when they start aligning words like healthy with weight loss? Such a great point. People can lose weight in so many unhealthy ways. People can maintain low body weights through unhealthy behaviours such as smoking, purging, taking diet pills and laxatives. So it's really important that we separate correlation between health and weight and see health more as an ongoing process that's separate from, you know, the number on the scales, which is obviously very static, but also distills uh, you know, a whole kind of concept down to one particular number. So that in itself is a really important thing for us to remember. But aside from that, in terms of health promotion, absolutely, I think um, there's there's so much fear mongering around obesity and um, and so much shaming around people who are sitting in bigger bodies. And so um, a lot of these health campaigns really focus on fear mongering and shaming shaming higher body weights. And absolutely, they they often fall into the wrong hands. So the people who are perceptive um people who are receptive to them are people who um often are more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder and a lot of these campaigns there's no sort of evidence to suggest that they are actually effective you know when we think about obesity um and i guess i'm saying this is someone who has a master master's in public health it's a real interest to me in terms of the um you know the broader kind of factors which contribute to uh to health um within our society but there's so much, so much evidence to suggest that, you know, obesity, if we're using that term, and I prefer not to use that term, um, but that there's so much, so much evidence to suggest that um, if people are sitting at higher than their, or above their natural body weight, that there's societal factors like access to exercise, you know, access to healthy food. There's no coincidence that people are more likely to be, uh, there's a direct correlation between body weight and shape and size. Um, with living closer to the coast, you know, the further regional some, someone becomes, the more likely they they are to sit at a higher body weight. And you think that if you've got to jump in your car and drive everywhere, you can't sort of safely walk. And access to, um, you know, to uh, fruit and vegetables is more limited. Like you can sort of see that there is absolutely a, a public health component, and a it's it's I think the the problem with these campaigns is they pitch 
um, sort of obesity or sitting at a higher body weight as an individual problem rather than, you know, something that, that is a systemic kind of issue. And I think it's also important that we remember and why I said I, I try not to use the word obesity is it sort of medicalizes bodies and kind of marginalizes fat bodies. And there is absolutely a, a spectrum of body weights and shapes. And so there will be some people who, who naturally sit at higher body weights and are very healthy and engage in health giving behavior all the time. And there's other people who sit at higher body weights who've been on diets for their entire weight and have literally dieted themselves fat. And so it's important to, for us to kind of not assume that people are sitting at healthy, at, at higher body weights because, um, you know, because of all of those sort of stereotypes around, you know, so-called called obesity. So the, you know, I think you think about the seven deadly sins, you know, how like glutton and slothfulness, like how many of those sorts of things are correlated in our minds often, unfortunately, with higher body weights. And so um, all things that we need to be mindful of and, and careful about. We have to be careful though, too. I know we have to draw a plimsoll line and, 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 across um, you know the way we diagnose things and we look at ourselves but there are those very generic charts where if you're a certain height and you need to fall into a range and that can be dangerous can't it yes that's right um because they don't take into account things like um genetics for example or um or um kind of ethnicity um so there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people for example with asian um backgrounds are more likely to sit at a lower body weight and so in according to bmi charts um they might be in a so-called healthy weight range but for them it may not actually be the healthiest weight for them um and um, again i kind of want to steer away from pathologizing you know weights specifically but i think um we really which which i've which i've just done in that example but i think um, we need to remember that there's a whole heap of factors which contribute to the weight that somebody's sitting at. So from a, a professional uh, perspective, why are eating disorders so hard to recover from? I think one of the hardest things with eating disorders is, firstly, people are terrified, you know, often that if they make changes that they're going to put weight on. And so living in a society that glorifies thinness and kind of demonises fatness you know that that's for many people their worst nightmare and one of the maintaining factors for the eating disorder for most people is the belief that it's keeping them at a lower body weight whether or not that's actually true and so giving up something that they've often invested years sometimes decades huge amounts of money into huge amounts of time that's come at the cost perhaps of their education friendships relationships um to turn around and kind of take the risk of doing something which which there's the, where there's a perception that it's going to result in weight gain, um, you know, that in itself is absolutely terrifying. But I think, again, when we think about societal ideas, so much of ideals, so much of um, these ideals that society upholds are kind of um, exhibited by eating disorders. So, you know, we, we talk in our, our language about being self-controlled around food and, you know, you, you didn't eat much today, you're great, you know, good on you, you've done, you haven't eaten bread today, like, um, and it's it's not it's kind of the moral association with thinness, but it's also the moral association with behaviour. And so, for many people to recover from an eating disorder feels like they're acquiescing, that they're giving in, that they're failing. And so, um, even if the eating disorders come at huge cost to them, and there's a part of them that can recognise that, and their friends are saying, "Get better, family. You know, we we want you not to have an eating disorder anymore." Um, it's very hard for someone to actually see that for themselves. 
Um, and the process of recovery is difficult. I think for most people, it's the hardest thing they'll ever do in their entire life because, um, you know, when your brain's, when, you, when you're recovering, and I, I can say this from lived experience, you know, your brain has played a big trick on you for many years and um, it's a really hard thing to kind of acknowledge that and, um, and kind of start to take steps towards recovery. So in that situation, what are some of the treatments, say, today compared to 5, 10, 15 years ago or approaches that need to be employed? Um, and has there been any recent developments in research when it, when it comes to treatments? Yeah, research is always developing and, in, and improving. And I think um, particularly the ARFID space, there's, there's more um, the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that I mentioned earlier, uh, that there's developments now, there's protocols around that and there's protocols around... Uh, more protocols around um, kind of even working with people at higher body weights who have eating disorders. So I think there's definitely emerging research and there's in Australia, there's been huge strides in the last um, five and 10 years in particular in terms of even disseminating this. So we've got some, I think in terms of like um, mental health conditions, the eating disorder space, they've been really successful in advocating for Medicare funding, in advocating for um, or in setting up um, training and kind of consistent um like a, a body or bodies which kind of are really just making sure that eating disorders stay on the agenda um for health professionals and you know in the government and in terms of advocacy um so but in terms of like protocols you know i think there's still a, a massive gap in terms of the severe and enduring anorexia um that there's a lot of people who have had a long-term anorexia and I feel like it's, it's one area in Australia where we still don't have good treatment for. Um, and it's a difficult thing, I think, from the government's perspective, they're kind of thinking like we can kind of increase Medicare, like we have X amount of funds to spend on eating disorders. Are we going to focus on early intervention through and, and treatment for the people who are more of the sort of so-called worried well, um, who can get better with 20 or 40 sessions via Medicare? Or, you know, are we going to put funding into this chronic and enduring uh, space and unfortunately, I think that time and time again, um, that group of people has really missed out in terms of accessing treatment. So, how can we talk about body image with our, our loved ones in a way that is supportive and helpful? And what are some of the questions that we can ask to determine whether he or she has an eating disorder? I think, in terms of language and in, in terms of general um, communication around food and bodies. One framework that I love is health at every size. And the reason why I love it is because I think in the past what's happened is the things which are being kind of praised and celebrated in someone in a higher body weight, such as counting calories, restricting food, doing lots of um, counting footsteps, you know, these sorts of things are then diagnosed. You see exactly the same behaviour with someone at a lower weight and, you think, weight and you're thinking, gosh, this person's got an eating disorder. So it's really confusing for someone to kind of go through that process. Like one minute they're being rewarded for behaviour that six months later is is what actually lends them to being diagnosed with an eating disorder. So the health at every size kind of framework I think is nice messaging um, in general that regardless of someone's weight, you know, where it doesn't matter, we don't have the number in the scales as a destination. We're thinking about um, a, an ongoing process irrespective of weight that involves all aspects of our personhood. And it's not focused on weight loss. It's focused on a continual, continual um, pursuit of health as a general concept. So um, I, I think that's really protective, a protective way in our community for us to be embracing um, how we talk about health and how we talk about bodies. 
Um, and if we're concerned about someone who might have an eating disorder, it's important um, to actually speak to them. The Butterfly Foundation and the, also states around Australia have, some states around Australia have state-based uh, charities as well. Um, but the Butterfly Foundation is a starting place um, has uh, is a, has a great call line and it's worth kind of seeking out specific support if you're concerned about a loved one. It, talking about your concerns, talking about whether you think that there might be a problem, kind of validating or confirming whether that's possible and having someone talk, who can coach you through that uh, process of engaging with them because it's likely uh, that it's going to be a number of conversations over a long period of time before they start to acknowledge that something's not right. And just because someone responds in a way that's angry or that they're upset about what you've said doesn't necessarily mean that you've gone about it in the wrong way or that you shouldn't have actually said it. So I think it can be really confusing because I think we sort of expect, you know, that we'll have a conversation with someone and say, I think, you know, I think you might have an eating disorder. And they say, yep, I think I do. I'm going to go and get help. And it just doesn't work like that. You know, I think because there's that reluctance to um, firstly the lack of insight typically and uh, lack of motivation to make change um, that it's a process of someone firstly acknowledging that something's not right secondly acknowledging that it's an eating disorder and then thirdly making a commitment or making even a decision as a starting place that they're interested in even beginning to think about making change and then that takes time um, for that process to uh, to occur. It seems uh, all very common sense, but it's not necessarily, is it? It's no, it, it, I think in reality, it's, it's easy for me to talk here and, and, and talk about the do's and the don'ts, don'ts, but the reality is that living with someone and, and loving someone who has an eating disorder is hard work. And, um, you know, it's very much that the family has an eating disorder in many senses because the impact is so widespread on siblings, children, parents, partners, uh, so much resources is really directed towards parents, but the reality is that so many people with eating disorders are adults. You know, they're married, they've got children, and um, I think we kind of really sort of stereotype eating disorders as a problem that teenagers experience. And, of course, typical ages of onset are teenage years, and, and, and it's very common in those years, but there's a lot of people who never had the opportunity to get better or haven't recovered um, or who have... Uh, onset as well as, as as adults so it's important that we remember that so just wrapping things up if there's if there's one message a single message that people can take away from our conversation today what would that be in your mind a single message I would say in terms of prevention is have a look at health at every size it's not a perfect philosophy um, but it's um, it provide, provides a framework if you're not familiar with it to think about how we talk about bodies and weight and shape and exercise and all of those sorts of things. And then the the other thing is if you're concerned that someone has someone or you might have a problem with food is reach out and 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 spend some time just trying to understand what's going on and start starting with someone like the Butterfly Foundation is a great start. They can help support um, the process of contemplating what might be going on and they can make recommendations and referrals for treatment. And if anyone wants to get in touch with the team at Body Matters, how do they go about that? They're more than welcome to get in touch. Our website's quite comprehensive, www.bodymatters.com.au. And from that, there's links to email or phone us and we'd love to have a chat with anyone that we, we can help. It's a confronting conversation sometimes and one that we have to have on so many fronts by so many people in so many parts of the world that we live in today. Sarah McMahon, thank you for your voice, the work you're doing and your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for informational purposes and not intended as a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis or treatment. For questions about your own emotional health and well-being, please consult a medical professional.